Go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds on politics, offering insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Join me, Tyler Foggett, for conversations with the most knowledgeable minds from The New Yorker that will dive deep on the most interesting political story of the week. Then, Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos gather to hash out what's happening in Washington, D.C., with an insider's understanding of the high stakes at this perilous moment for American democracy. Plus, our editor David Remnick will provide you with insightful storytelling with a mix of interviews and profiles. That's all happening on the political scene. Make sure you're following it now, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jason Kander, and this is Majority 54. This episode is our season two finale, and I hope you've gotten as much from these dozen episodes as I have. Here at the end of season two, I'd love to ask you to tell some friends about our program and revisit any of the episodes you missed. All right, let's talk about today's guest. At Majority 54, we're big on helping you reach across ideological divides to help you keep relationships or build new ones especially when there's an issue that presents a danger to all of us. In 2014, there was a shooting outside the Jewish Community Center in Overland Park, Kansas, a suburb of Kansas City, Missouri. The gunman was a white supremacist, the former Grand Dragon of the Ku Klux Klan. He picked this location because he was sure he would find Jewish children preparing for a talent show. The gunman killed three people and then drove down the street and waited for police to arrest him. When he found out none of his victims were actually Jewish, he said just being there, they were accomplices of Jews. Of the three people killed in Overland Park, two of them were related to Mindy Corcoran. One was her 14-year-old son, Reet, a high school freshman, going to the Jewish Community Center to audition for a contest for the best high school singer in the Kansas City area. And the other was her father, a practicing physician, who took his grandson to the audition. Mindy was supposed to meet them there. When she arrived at the scene, her life changed forever. Every mother out there is wondering how you can survive that, right? How does a woman survive that? And yet here you are. And what was incredible when I read your story was the, the night of the vigil, memorializing yes. them, you stood up with the pain still fresh and said, something good will come of this. Yes. There was another woman who was murdered after them. And when I went to the vigil, I didn't know who that other person was. It was very important to me to state at that vigil that the two people that I knew and loved and were my whole being um, were wonderful people, were great people. My dad was a physician and still practicing medicine. And my son was a performer, a singer and a, and a performer. And he was at the Jewish Community Center for an audition. And I wanted people to know immediately that a couple of things. One, God didn't kill them. I didn't want anyone to think that God did this. I wanted them to know that something evil had happened, but that because they were such good people that we would make sure that good came from it. I know Mindy because of her friendship with my wife. Mindy and Diana were both part of a professional women's organization in Kansas City, a really tight-knit group. Since that unspeakable tragedy... Mindy has been working to spread a message of peace and kindness that spans every religious background, and you and I have a very important role to play in it. I want you to listen to this very powerful conversation I had with Mindy and listen to how someone who has endured the most difficult of circumstances has grabbed an oar 
and decided to put an end to hate crime. Here is my conversation with Mindy Corcoran about turning the tide of white nationalism. Why did you agree to do this interview, uh, like now as opposed to eight months or so ago during season one? Great question, because I think so often I am led by a higher spirit, and I call that higher spirit God, and God works in many lives so many different ways. And in mine, I'm much more aware of it because of the tragedy that happened. And so I agreed now to do this interview because right after— you all asked me to do the podcast, and I had said, no, I wasn't ready. Boom, boom, boom. I was introduced to three separate reformed white supremacists. And I had not been prepared for that. I wasn't prepared for an interview about, you know, the Aryan nation, white supremacists, whatever you might want to call them. I don't—I hadn't wanted to talk about the shooter or his beliefs or other people's beliefs. But right after you all asked me, Someone introduced me to a reformed white supremacist named Christian Picciolini who wrote the book White American Youth. And so I watched his TED Talk and I read his book. And then I was introduced to two others by different ways. One was a podcast, actually, and then one was a book. And all three of them were difficult to read their story and understand their story, knowing that that's as close as I've come to the shooter who took the lives of my dad and son. So I was introduced to them, and I've gone so far as now I've had a live conversation with Mr. Picciolini. He's in Chicago, and he's speaking in a lot of places, and I I believe doing a lot of good things. I've not seen him personally, but I've read about him. And I have a different perspective on maybe how I can help and maybe the voice that I have. And I also think that sometimes, frequently, God pushes me into a place where I didn't want to go, but will push me and say, I need you here And I got an email from Diana within days of me speaking to Christian Live, and she said, we just wanted to check, would you be ready now? And I thought, okay, that's my sign. Hmm. And so I jumped on it and said, yes, I'm ready now. I'm glad you did. The night of the tragedy, you went to a vigil um, that classmates of of your son were having, and, and you were there to be there for them. At that time, how much did you know about the shooter and his motivations? I knew nothing. I knew absolutely nothing. I... I knew that it was a man, and I knew in in my own brain that they were killed at the Jewish Community Center and that it's a Jewish location. But other than that, no one had said much to me about that. The trauma of finding my dad in the parking lot and then finding Reet in the parking lot and the hospital, the chaos, and then being at the vigil, there had been no briefing. There was no—I I knew that another person had died, and the only reason I knew that Terry Lomano had lost her life is because my husband, Lynn, and my son, Lucas, drove to Village Shalom on accident. And they said there was another w- person shot, and we think it's a woman, but they weren't even sure. So when I spoke at the vigil, I knew that there was another person, but I didn't know anything about the other person. So nothing about the shooter or why it happened or how it happened at the time. Tell me about actually finding out about the shooter. You know, I haven't been asked that question, so I'm trying to think of that memory. I remember the whole thing being unimaginable. I believe when I found out was when Pastor Adam Hamilton of the Church of the Resurrection came to my mom's house and said, the Today Show wants to interview you. And I didn't understand at all what the significance of dad and Reed's death were 
and why it was national news. And I remember saying, why why do they want to interview me and why is it national news? And he said, Mindy, it's international news because he was a white supremacist. So I believe that was a time and I, it was about two days later when I found out the, that who he was and that he made the statement, Heil Hitler. And how did I feel? Um, I couldn't feel much because I think when a tragedy happens of that magnitude, you're protected, there are parts of you that your body somehow figures out how to protect. And it was angering. But what happened to me is I was then sent over the next several months on this trajectory to understand Judaism. Mm -hmm. Why would someone murder because of a faith? And I knew that it had happened. I knew it had happened. I knew about the Holocaust. I knew it had happened. But why now? I just felt like so many more people should be educated and not do that. And so there was a disbelief or a belief that those people did not exist. And then there was the belief that even if they did exist, they wouldn't go to that extent and they wouldn't murder um, innocent people, you know, not— they weren't rallying. They weren't—they didn't have arms. They weren't against anyone. They were literally in the parking lot going to the audition. So there were a lot of thoughts about that. I felt ignorant about the fact that people with that much hate existed. I didn't know. And I've learned now that there are people with that much hate, and I want to try to help them. Well, and we all sort of protect ourselves from that. And, you know, in your case— Tragically, it, it touched your family, but I don't think you were in any way um, outside the usual course of life and that when there's people who are hateful and violent that we don't spend a lot of time thinking about. It's not a pleasant thing to think about. It's a hard thing to wrap your mind around. Um, and so, yeah, I don't think it's—so I, I can see how until it directly affected your life, you're like any of the rest of us. It's not something you were investigating. Uh, prior to that. So what's interesting about your statement, and I appreciate you saying, Mindy, you're not ignorant in a very nice way, (laughs) is that I had been to the Jewish Community Center, and I've been since the Jewish Community Campus so many times, and it had never crossed my mind to be afraid. But yet, out in the world, when people hear about the tragedy, maybe people who don't live here, I have been asked, why would you let your family go there? Why would, and I thought, gosh, they don't know our community. Mm-hmm. And every, everyone should be safe there. We've always been safe there. But I've been asked that question and put on alert for you need to be more aware. There, there are mm-hmm. hateful people out there. So I think my perspective has changed certainly since um, that hate exploded all over us. Mm-hmm. I remember being at, at the funeral, and I remember how strong you were. And, 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 um, and then— Afterwards, uh, sometime later, there was another funeral and, and because of another community tragedy. And you felt called to be there for that community, right? The Muslim community. Yeah. Can yes. you tell me more about that? So I was actually physically called by someone to be there. Huh. And so the scenario goes like this. I received a phone call from Adam Hamilton, my pastor, and he said, Mindy, there's a Muslim woman looking for you. Those are really odd words to me because I was exploring Judaism mm-hmm. so much so that I'd met with um, Rabbi Nimitoff and I'd met with another couple of rabbis and was really exploring, am I supposed to be Christian or should I be Jewish? And I was in the middle of that faith search 
when Pastor Hamilton says, a Muslim woman is looking for you. And I said, why? I think I'm supposed to be Jewish. And that was my response to him. And he he said, what are you talking about? And <laughs> well, he's your pastor. He's so my that, pastor. It may have been news to him. It was definitely <laughs> news to him. And he, and I said, you know, that's that's for another discussion. I realized that, you know, that he was calling for a different reason. Unfortunately, there was a young man who had been run over by a car um, right outside his mosque. And I hadn't known about it because I was not watching the news on purpose. I didn't want—every time I turned on the news, I would see a picture of my dad and Reed and Terry Lomano and then the shooter. And so I just had turned off the news. And this murder had happened, and the family, the student, his friends, asked for Reet Underwood's mom to be at the vigil. Mm. And, you know, you're a dad, and when people call you, mm-hmm. you know, your son's—you're Drew's right. dad. And so that's who you are. Mm-hmm. And you jump on that. And so when they said they wanted Reet Underwood's mom to come, you know, I felt that, okay, I'm supposed to be there. And so my mom and my brother went with me, and our expectation was that we were just representing our family. We were there to support their family. But when I walked in, I was presented with the itinerary, and I was supposed to speak. Wow. And that was very— um, eye-opening that they had enough trust in me that I could come and speak in their place of worship. Mm -hmm. I also realized how little I knew about Islam or being Muslim and their faith, and I felt inadequate. Through many things you'll hear when I talk, I have felt inadequate. I felt inadequate knowing about how much hate there is in people that they would murder. I felt inadequate about knowing Judaism. I felt inadequate about understanding Islam and so I push have pushed myself to understand more about different faiths. And that's how the Faith Always Wins Foundation stands on faith. We stand on kindness, faith, and healing to help people understand different faiths. This is a good opportunity. Talk more about that, if you would. Yes. So we stand on kindness for the idea that if the shooter could have been directed, redirected, I should say, if people who are filled with such hate and disgust, could have an opportunity to have someone touch their heart and offer them love. I just expect, I don't know anything about his upbringing other than what I read in the transcript, that he was raised, I'm talking about the shooter, that the shooter was raised with hate. And maybe people tried to redirect him, but perhaps they didn't. Maybe they were afraid of him. But I feel like if we could make people aware to redirect someone from hurt or pain and offer them love and help them feel valued, then they wouldn't hate so much and it would give them an opportunity to learn about another, learn about a friend, make a friend with someone that they wouldn't have thought they could be friends with. So that's our kindness. And under our kindness pillar, we created the event Seven Days Make a Ripple Change the World. And we've had four years of that now under our belts. And it's got its own brand and it's got a great following. And I'm very, very proud of that event and that activity. We have themes that people can follow, love, discover, others, connect, you, go, and onward. And I could go on and on about all of those themes, but I'm going to move on to the pillar of faith. So we have the pillar of kindness and the pillar of faith with Faith Always Wins. And faith, you know, faith transcends religion. So faith, so many of us have faith. You have faith in humanity. You have faith in Kansas City. You have faith in yourself. 
I have faith that I can make a difference in the world, that I can help other people be better and I can help myself be better. And when you layer religion on top of it, you add rules around it. You add, um, you know, specific things that and specific deities and practices that people follow. And for some reason, we begin to think and feel that if you don't follow those rules, then you lack faith when really it all boils down to having that faith inside. And um, I have such a broad, different perspective of who God is to me than who I thought God was before the shooting. And I feel like there is one God. I feel like we, we have a higher being. We have a God. And to me, that's God. As a Christian, I find God through Jesus. But as a Jewish person— you're not going to find God through Jesus. You're, you're just going to go directly to God and Moses. You know, Moses mm-hmm. was a very important prophet, the most important prophet for Judaism. And for Islam, it's Muhammad um, or Ali. And so, but underneath those rules that you're supposed to follow and the religious institutions put them in place. And if you don't follow those, for some reason, you're lacking in faith. But and I just think that's so um, negative. And so then people say, well, I'm not going to do that. Well, I'm, you know, if I have to be in church on that day or I have to go to the synagogue on that day, I'm not going to follow that religion. Therefore, I might not have faith when I think people do. So what we're doing in that pillar is we've hired a young woman, Claire Stern, and she works with our foundation and another foundation, Kansas City Interfaith Youth Alliance, and we have a youth group. So you know, where does change come from? Change comes from the next generation. Mm -hmm. And so we are focusing on the younger generation to help them understand their own faith and to explore other faiths. And I'm very clear with parents. I'm not trying to take your, you know, little Jewish boy and turn him into a Muslim at all or a Christian or whatever or vice versa. I just want people to understand that we're human first that we can have faith, and then the rituals is the word I was looking for. And then you layer on the rules, the laws, the rituals. And sometimes those are so important to people, and that's fantastic. But if that's not the most fantastic part for you, it might just be that your faith is the most fantastic part. It might also be belonging, like that just being with others, whether they're of the same religion or not. Um, You know, I I have done recently some speeches for— like I've gone and spoken to BBYO kids, which is a Jewish youth group. And, and, I, and I went to Catholic school, so I was, I'm really familiar with, like, Christian youth groups as well. And what you've essentially created is just an interfaith youth program. That is correct. It's an interfaith youth group. That's what we're trying to do. We have an interfaith youth group, and we have programs that we put on to help people have dialogue. And what's been interesting over the last—the first three years we had these programs— the youth would come, but then the parents started asking, can we come too? So this last year for seven days, we allowed adults to come. We had more adults than we had students. <laughs> we had twice as many adults as we had students come to our event. And it was really nice to see. And I realized that I want to focus on the youth, but I need to not ignore that there are adults out there craving the same information that I was craving mm-hmm. to understand what do these people believe. And I've have found that we have so much more in common. That sense of belonging is also relevant to when you think about what we were discussing a moment ago, hate, because 
when we were talking about how does a person learn that kind of hate, I feel like part of it is also somewhere along the line, I guess somewhat ironically, they may have found some sense of belonging with others who hate. Uh, you know, like, absolutely. And and so when you talk about redirecting, it is it's not a question of love or hate. It it might sometimes be just a person who's isolated and which gets there first because either way it is a sense of belonging. It's a it's a sense of opportunity and friendship oddly. Absolutely. The two books that I have read, the um, White American Youth and then um I think the other one was called My Life as a Skinhead. It's by Frank Mink. And both of these young men find the hate and the white supremacy through the need to find somewhere to belong. They they both talk about that. And um, Christian Picciolini didn't didn't go to that group or be drawn to that group because of anything horribly negative that his parents did to him. He was lonely, and he talks about being a lonely teenage boy looking for somewhere to belong. And the um, Aryan nation found him, and they were happy for him to belong. And they fed him and fed him and fed him all of this and built him up. And he felt strengthened by it and felt—and he also had leadership skills. He just happened to have leadership skills, and he became a, a very prominent leader in, um, in that area. And then same thing with Frank Mink in his book. He— uh, from my childhood and his childhood, we are so pol- we are so opposite. I mean, it was so difficult to read how he was brought up and uh, the parenting that he did not receive. And he found the hate the same way. So when we're born, you know, again, you're a father, I'm a mom. Babies don't hate. They crave love and need love and and should be given love and are want to be nurtured. But it's in those very difficult teen years that we all can go back and go, ugh, I remember being 13. I remember being 14, and that was not fun. And if you're not given the love and the nurturing that you need in the right way, if the right things are not poured into you, the values of humanity poured into you, but hate is poured into you, then that's where they blossom. You know, it's whatever you put into them is how they grow. We're really grateful to the sponsors that help us put this show together and therefore help us put out content like this conversation with Mindy. We're going to tell you about some of them now. Sunbasket delivers delicious meal kits right to your door, making healthy cooking easy and convenient for any busy lifestyle. Sunbasket has been rated the number one meal kit by leading publications, and it's no wonder why. They offer 18 weekly recipes with options for paleo, gluten-free, Mediterranean, lean and clean, vegan, and more. But for me, what matters is that Sunbasket helps me eat healthier. Simple as that. Sunbasket makes it easy and convenient to cook healthy, delicious meals at home, no matter how much experience you have in the kitchen. Now you get more options than ever. Just go to the Sunbasket app and pick from 18 weekly recipes. Easily cooked dishes like seared albacore tuna steaks with green beans and soft cooked eggs. Mm. There are paleo, gluten-free, lean and clean, vegan, Mediterranean family options, and more. Sunbasket works with the best farms and suppliers to bring you fresh, organic produce and responsibly raised meats and seafood. Everything is pre-measured and easy to prep. You can get healthy and delicious meals on the table in about 30 minutes. There's something for every healthy journey and every busy lifestyle. Go to sunbasket.com slash 5-4 today to learn more and get $35 off your first order. That's sunbasket.com slash 5-4 for $35 off sunbasket.com slash 5-4.
No matter what you do in the bathroom to get ready, Dollar Shave Club has everything you need to look, feel, and smell your best. They have amazing shower stuff, hairstyling products, toothbrushes and toothpaste, and of course, razors and shave supplies. I just showed Jason the viral video that Dollar Shave Club recently published, and it's all about the embarrassing things that men do to get ready in the morning. I don't know if it's embarrassing. I learned some new stuff. <laughs> you might uh, shave your whole body to get ready for a bike race. That's, that's actually written here. Dollar Shave Club's executive razor and shave butter can help. You might do your hair to get ready for your soccer match. Boogies by DSC can help you get your style right. The thing is, no matter what you do to get ready, DSC has everything you need. And right now, you can get ready with an amazing deal on any one of their starter sets. I recommend the Daily Essentials starter set. But you can't go wrong with any of them. Head over to dollarshaveclub.com slash 5-4 to pick your own DSC starter set for just $5. After your starter set, products ship at regular price. And make sure you check out their new video too, as Diana mentioned. That's dollarshaveclub.com slash 5-4, dollarshaveclub.com slash 5-4. I can remember being on the campaign trail, like in rural parts of Missouri, and um, going and shaking hands and... And I remember one occasion in particular talking to uh, a man and what was clearly his grandson. And uh, they were, it was like a truck stop. They were in like hunting clothes. I think they were out hunting together. And I'm talking to him for a moment. And the grandfather proceeds to say something really horrendous and just a total racial slur about President Obama. And, and I remember, unfortunately, it wasn't the first time somebody had said something like that to me on the campaign trail. So I wasn't as shocked maybe by that, but what I remember, and, and you know, I had a pretty, I was used to that. Un unfortunately, I was a little used to that. But I remember being just heartbroken thinking about here was his like 10-year-old grandson who almost had no chance at not hating because he's sitting there and his grandfather's, you know, when you're 10 years old, your grandpa's a certain way. It's it's hard to know that your grandpa is wrong. Absolutely. Well, and he probably wants to emulate his granddad, and and most children should, you know, right. want to emulate their grandchildren. I mean, yeah. their grandfather, their grandparents, and so, yes. And so, where else can that young boy be redirected? You know, would he would he be redirected in school? Would he be redirected at a program that he might attend at a church, or or maybe at a conference later, maybe in his teens? You know, he'll go to some kind of event where people will be talking about there are other faiths out there. You know, maybe someone will befriend him who's of a different color, and he'll say to himself, how can I hate African Americans when now this guy is my friend? Um, I hope that that happens because you're right. The, the third person that I got introduced to, again, via a podcast, I've not met him, via podcast was Derek Black. And his dad, Joe Black, is the um, creator of a very horrendous hate website. Mm. And a podcast was created um, called On Being Podcast. And Derek Black was interviewed with, I think, Matthew Stevenson, who's an Orthodox Jew. And they met in college and they became friends. And the name of the podcast is called Quiet Conversations. And I didn't just cry through the whole podcast. I sobbed through the whole podcast because what these two young men do not understand is how powerful it is what they're doing because what they're doing would have saved my dad and son's lives. Mm -hmm. If more people did what they had the courage to do and focused more on understanding one another and taking time to learn about one another, maybe my dad and son would not mm -hmm. be dead. 
How long after the tragedy did you, I mean, did you make a decision to start researching white nationalism, or how did that happen? Well, Diana emailed me and said what I'd like to interview (laughs) and that you all might talk about white nationalism, and I said, no, I'm not ready. Okay, so that, so it was really in the intervening period. Yes. Okay. I have avoided it. I have avoided it, avoided it, avoided it. I have not wanted to go down this path. And then when I said no to you, all these things kept popping up and all these people kept pushing into my life. And I finally said, okay, God, I'm listening. Okay. Okay. Already I'm listening. And then Diana emailed again and I said, okay, I'm ready to interview. I do a lot of stuff because she asked me to, but that's a pretty (laughs) incredible thing. And your strength to be able to do it is, um, speaks for itself. What's the most surprising thing that you've learned about the white nationalist movement? What I've seen is that they don't, when they're in that hate space, they don't live productive, successful lives. They are always looking for money. They're always looking for literally handouts. They're working tons of jobs. They're they're just not successful, even prominent in a community, even a small community. And yet— they think that the hate is still worth it. And I, I just want to say, if you, if you would quit hating so much and go out into the world and befriend other people, you would feel better about yourself and therefore success would come to you, whatever success looks like. And just that's just being able to eat. In, in the material that I've read, the two men in particular just really, really struggled through certain times in their life with finding food and taking care of their family because they were so ingrained in this hate process and and then the violence of it um, that they couldn't they couldn't find a normal job, I guess, and just find that there's another life out there. There is happiness out there. They just seem to have no happiness. And I don't I'm surprised by why they stay in that. But to your point and my point, I just, they they don't ever, they don't know what that looks like. They haven't, it's not been modeled for them. Happiness was not really modeled for them. And so they found what they thought would strengthen them another way. I remember in high school when we were reading Huck Finn, uh, and I remember the teacher explaining that the character Jim, who is African-American, that the reason that and I can't remember who there was another character who was a poor white man who would constantly just berate Jim and I, and I remember my high school English teacher explaining that that guy has nothing the white character but he has told himself the story that at least he's better than Jim and I and I feel like there's an element of that it's like nothing is going well in my life I'm unhappy with and I'm dysfunctional in this way and it's almost like they're telling themselves a story or someone has told them a story. Yeah, but you have this. This is a commodity you have. You are somehow magically and unrealistically superior to this other person through no work of your own. That kind of goes back to the belonging, I guess. Yes, they're looking for some, some way to put them up on a pedestal, some way to make them feel better about themselves. And the only way that they choose to feel better about themselves is to put other people down. And it's so much—the other thing I was surprised by, it's so much worse than just name-calling. So much worse. It's this horrible physical violence. And, of course, in our situation, it led to murder. And my fear is that that 
that could continue. And I, that's what I want to stop. I want to stop hate crimes. People ask, you know, what, what do you want to do? Well, I want to stop hate crimes. And I know that sounds just, well, how are you going to do that? Well, you know, one person at a time, one ripple at a time. And I had someone ask me the other day or mention, you know, you're doing all of these good things, but you're probably preaching to the choir. You know, the people who come want to come. The people who come want to find kindness and want to feel kindness, but you're probably not reaching those people that you need to reach. And that was kind of another poke at me. Mindy, how are you going to reach the people who really need to hear this message? And that was another reason to do the interview was to say, okay, I'm ready to reach people who really need to hear the message. And and that's why I reached out to Christian Picciolini and we had a live conversation. And I don't know what he and I will do together in the future, but I think that there's a future for the two of us to be on stage together. I think I think that one, we will have him come to Kansas City for seven days. And I think two, he can tell his story of hate and I can tell my story of being the victim of the life he led and yet surviving and him knowing that it was wrong. And so I feel like that's a huge, powerful story that hopefully we can reach the right people in their teens who are being poured into in the wrong way and pour into them in the correct way. Well, and the whole idea of, you know, the idea that you're preaching to the choir. I have a friend who likes to say, uh, yeah, I'm preaching to the choir, but the choir needs to practice. And and what I take that to mean is, is that, yeah, clearly the people who are who are, you know, becoming a part of the interfaith movement that that you're working on and bringing these folks together, they're predisposed to kindness. But the thing is, is we all interact with all these other people in our lives. And if all, and, and if what happens is, is all those people end up having conversations with people in their congregation or a parent at their kid's school, or, you know, you never know when that ripple is going to get to somebody else. So yeah, it's unlikely that somebody who um, has been drawn toward white supremacy uh, is going to show up at one of these events, but it's very likely that one of the people who shows up, you know, has a cousin or a friend of a cousin or somebody who's visiting these websites, whether they realize it or not. And if they're moved to go and speak about these things, that's where the change happens. Correct. And I totally agree with that. That's the ripple that changes the world. It feels to me like over the last couple of years, in our discourse, hate, or at least intolerance, and I would say hate, has become more mainstream. And like it's almost becoming more like we have this term now, the, the alt-right, which really means, you know, some version of supremacy, white supremacy argument. Do you see that same thing, that it feels like it's becoming more mainstream, like with public Nazis running for office and that kind of thing? And how do you feel about that? Well, in my world, uh, it happened in 2014. Right. And so in 2018, I'm becoming more aware of it because I'm choosing to. So I literally had to choose to read those books. I had to choose to listen to that podcast. So in my world, I'm not, I'm not out looking for them. And um, for anyone who's white supremacist at the time, they say the reformed ones seem to keep finding me. <laughs> and and maybe that will be a really good thing. I, you know, again, our event happened in 2014, and I didn't know it existed then. And so the other thing is, and you're totally aware of this with a podcast and your website and everything is social media is so prevalent. In the books that I read, these these men, when they were younger, they faxed things or they mailed things and their propaganda, they mailed it. And it took a long time. And then, you know, they might have 20 people show up at an event. And then those 
20 would mail something and then 40 people would show. Well, now you Instagram something or you snap it or you Facebook it and all of a sudden people arise. Um, Coups have happened because of the internet availability. And so I think to, to me, that's where the prevalence comes from. And to me, that's how I see it. In the, um, in my world, I'm trying to have good and kindness and faith and healing be louder than evil. But I will admit to you that on April 13th of 2014, evil won that day. And I don't want evil to win again. And so I use social media just like they do. But I use it, hopefully, you know, for a better purpose and to to get the word out of the good things happening. Yeah, I mean, that makes perfect sense. It's it's the question of whether or not they're becoming louder and more um, mainstream is irrelevant to how we react to it. Because whether they are or are not, our job is to is to put more goodness out in the world. Yes, and we can choose how to react. And and so many people will say. How were you so strong? How did you do such and such? You know, where did did you know your faith was that strong? How are you so courageous? Well, I, by the way, I was one of those people. Like I was at the funeral. I watched you that day. I uh, and I remember saying to Diana, like that I can't imagine having faith that strong. So, yeah, I, th- I think watching you, a lot of people reacted that way. Well, thank you for coming to the funeral, oh. and I, I appreciate it. I. I love my dad and my son and with so much of my being, just like you love your family and you, when they're killed, you don't want them to be killed in vain. And so there was no way they were going to be killed in vain. I mean, we had, they were such good people. We had to make good things happen from that. And that just was an immediate reaction for me. And Terry Lomano, the same. I mean, my dad and Terry Lomano were both in the medical field Mm -hmm. and I think my brother, one of my brothers said this, if the shooter had come to the emergency room, my dad would have cared for him as an emergency room doctor without question and would have tried to save his life, whereas the shooter took no qualms about anything and just um, ambushed my dad and then murdered Reed. So it is about how we react. I cannot change what happened. I can't fix it. My personal life and my professional life have transitioned so completely since 2014, and and obviously part of that's what we're talking about, the faith always wins foundation and the work that I'm doing. But every time I have to make a new transition, I know why. It's because of April 13th. I mean, every time we do something different or something new, I always look back and say, I have to stand on this. I have to stand on good things have to come from this. I can't let them, I can't let that evil win again. What kind of pushback have you received? The pushback that I have received has specifically been, um, first of all, it's been gentle. It's been gentle. I think people take their time in giving me critical feedback because of the tragedy. And so that's been nice of them. But the pushback I've gotten has been in the faith area. I was pretty clear when I talked at the mayor's prayer breakfast in March of 2016 when I said, I feel like I'm being asked to bring God's people together, and God's people are everybody. You know, God made all of us as humans, and and the pushback has been, why am I not just talking about Jesus? And I searched my faith. I did work on in Judaism, and I've looked at Islam, and I've looked at Hinduism and Buddhism, and I feel very confident and have faith in Jesus, and I follow Jesus. But that's not where I'm supposed to be talking. I'm supposed to be talking about bringing God's people together 
and understanding commonalities. One thing that just gets at me is I feel like as Americans, we tend not to know each other anymore because we have segmented our lives in such a way where even if it's forget racial differences or, or political differences, just the people on the other side of town, you don't know because there's nothing that forces you to know them anymore like it used to because of technology and everything else. Right. But I will tell you one super cool thing is going to an event. Like I know you like the Royals. Mm -hmm. So going to an, a, Roy a Royals game, and we may be all from different walks of life, but when we get in that stadium, we yeah. are all Royals fans. Everybody's blue. Everybody's blue. <laughs> yeah. And I always think, wouldn't it be cool if we walked in here with shirts that said, you know, white, Christian, uh, Republican. Okay, what if that's on my shirt and I come and sit next to you, mm -hmm. right? At a real house game. Yeah, <laughs> and you have a white, Jewish, Democrat, mm -hmm. right? So what would our conversation look like? Well, we don't know that about each other, mm -hmm. but we sit next to each other and we're all in blue and we're all for each mm -hmm. other. So I just want us to all be for each other more often without labeling, without these labels that we walk in with. Okay, last one. A, a, a big thrust of our show is talking about how people use their platform, uh, no matter how big or how small. Uh, what advice do you have that anybody listening can put into practice today in terms of making their community or the country into a better place? Just no matter what their cause is, no matter what it is they care about. What have I learned is that I didn't do it all on my own. And, and I knew I wouldn't, but I didn't know how many people were looking for something to help make a difference. I, w I know it was our family that was murdered. I, kn I know that I live with it every single day, but it affected the whole community. And what I didn't understand is that by creating this event, Seven Days Make a Ripple Change the World here has helped so many other people too. It's given them an outlet and it's helped them heal and I've helped them heal. So I think if you know you, someone is wanting to make a difference allow other people to join you because they may, may need that. Just because it's your idea doesn't mean someone else doesn't need it too. Mm -hmm. If somebody wanted to start a chapter in their city, what would they need to do? Yeah, so we are creating seven-day cities. So Kansas City, Missouri um, was a seven-day city for 2018. And Olathe and Leewood and Overland Park were all seven-day cities. And so we're putting together the criteria um, so that Cities can be certified seven-day cities, and they can uh, email us at info at Give7Days. It's all spelled out, G-I-V-E-S-E-V-E-N-D-A-Y-S, -E -E um, so Give7Days.org. Um, we're also creating uh, certifications for companies to be a seven-days company, and we're outlining what does it mean, what does it look like, and then, you know, what do we give to them, what do they give us in return, but how do we make our world a better place? How do we make a ripple and change the world? I really appreciate you doing this. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks for asking a second time. Glad we did. A huge Team Candor thank you to Mindy Corcoran for sitting down to do this show. That was a very painful, complicated, challenging discussion to have. And I hope that she gets to keep doing good works out in the world for a long time to come. It's important for all of us. You can find her organization, 7 Days, at give7days.org. And you can follow along with Mindy's work on Twitter at Mindy Corporan. Corporan is spelled C-O-R-P-O-R-O-N. She's just the most incredible human being. And I emailed her after the interview and I told her that I could just feel her 
grace when I'm in her presence. And I'm so grateful that she agreed to do the show and that she shared her experience and her message. And I hope that everybody goes to check out Give Seven Days. If you just started listening this season, you should know that one of the great things about this show is that almost all the episodes are evergreen. They're not tied to news cycles. So you can go back and you can get something out of each episode that you haven't heard from either season one or season two. We intentionally made sure they wouldn't be dated after a year or so. This has been a meaningful season of the show, and I so appreciate everyone who comes up to me and to Diana and tells us their favorite episodes. Or that I am the best part of the show. <laughs> yes, she appreciates <laughs> that too. Uh, and it's correct. Um, all right. We'll talk to you soon. On behalf of my wife, Diana, our producer, Brock Wilbur, and the entire Majority 54 team, thanks for listening. And remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today. And every day. Hi, listeners. It's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world? For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varva Lucas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts.